welcome to What is California, a podcast featuring conversations with notable Californians in a quest to understand the Golden State. I'm your host, Stu Van Aersdale. On this episode, I am joined by Zeke Lunder. Zeke is the founder of The Lookout, a website, YouTube channel, and social media outlet where Zeke breaks down the latest wildfire intelligence from around California. We are in the second week of September 2022, and California fire season is here after kind of an eerily slow start in August. As of this recording, on the afternoon of September 11th, we have seen a trifecta of fires up north in Siskiyou County, and at the moment, the Mosquito Fire in neighboring Placer and El Dorado counties has prompted around 6,000 people to evacuate in those areas. Meanwhile, down in the south end of the state, the Fairview Fire is burning in Riverside County, and the Radford Fire is burning in San Bernardino County uh, near uh, Big Bear. So if you go to Zeke's website, thelookout.org, that's the-lookout.org, you can find write-ups and live stream recordings and maps and other data that Zeke parses for a pretty fast-growing big audience around California. It really is a remarkable one-stop shop for this kind of, like I was saying, wildfire intelligence. That's a phrase that I first heard from Zeke's work. And it's a really good way of describing this kind of up-to-the-minute detail that he derives from official fire data from around the state. Uh, He looks at the maps and the conditions, you know, on the ground or the weather, how the firefighting resources look, et cetera. And he takes all that information that he's observed and crunched for years as a fire professional. He really knows how to do this stuff. And he really helps folks understand and anticipate what's next with these wildfires in their areas. You know, where are they headed? Can they be contained? When can they be contained? How much fuel is on the ground for a particular fire in a particular area? Will the winds or you know, other conditions make circumstances better or worse? Uh, when, it, you know, when it comes to these fires, uh, f- whether it's fighting them, whether it's fleeing them, or you know, more and more people living around them, you know, what have you, it's always better to have more information than less information, right? So it's even better to have a trustworthy and seasoned and very experienced and incredibly knowledgeable person like Zeke Lunder helping us make sense of that information. So Zeke and I talked a few weeks ago before this current array of fires took off. So before the recent, um, you know, this record-breaking statewide heat wave that really exacerbated fire conditions in California. This conversation is kind of a big picture look, not just at this fire season, but fire season as a California condition, because it's always been here and it always will be here. And Zeke has candid thoughts about how the state today does and does not account for this kind of fundamental reality of California life, you know, where it builds homes and communities or rebuilds homes and communities, how California prepares for fires, how it accommodates evacuees and more. And he also talks about the impact of fire on those who fight it, 
which is something that Zeke has firsthand experience with. Uh, and of course, you know, we cover the what is California, uh, you know, basics, you know, like Zeke's own California story and his favorite California. Uh, it's a really great and thought provoking and quite affecting chat. I'm just, I don't know. I just, I'm so glad we had the chance to talk. Uh, I really love his work and uh, I was thrilled to catch up with him. You can check out the show notes in your podcast app for links to everything that we cover in our chat. And if you have comments or feedback about this episode or anything else on what is California, then please drop me a line at hello at what is California.com. Uh, just a quick bit of housekeeping. I was so pleased to see and hear the response to last week's season premiere with Franklin Leonard from the blacklist. And I know I say this all the time, folks, but this season is really shaping up to be something special. Uh, I, you know, season one and season two were great. Um, but as we head into season three, we have a lot of excellent, excellent guests lined up through the end of this year. So I am so grateful for their voices and for your listenership. So stick around. And in the meantime, let's get to it. Here's me with Zeke Lunder from The Lookout on what is California. Enjoy. Zeke Lunder, it is so great to have you on What is California. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, I want to talk about your work with The Lookout, which is a fantastic site and resource for folks interested in tracking fires around the state. But let's start with your California story. Are you from the state originally? And if not, then how and when did you get here? Yeah, I was born in Oakland, California. And then uh, my parents moved up to northeastern California when I was about five. Whereabouts in northeastern California? A um, little town called Westwood in northeastern California in Lassen County. So what part of California is home for you today? I live in Chico, so Butte County. Why Chico? This is the closest large town to where I grew up. It's actually one of the closer stoplights. And um came down here for college 30 years ago, actually 30 years ago to this week. Wow. And um, went to school here for graphic design and geography. And then um, went back home and worked for the Forest Service in the summertime and got into wildfire through forestry and uh, ended up getting a mapping degree in Chico, geography degree. Um, and so I've kind of stuck around because there's plenty of fire and mapping to do in this part of the world. Graphic design and geography. That's a very interesting combination. Was the idea always to get into mapping and, and that type of thing? No, I got into geography because I thought if I spent my life as a graphic designer, I'd be on a computer all the time. Oh, and here you are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess you do get out of the office every now and then, but, um, you're definitely spending some time at a computer, right? Yeah. In what ways has your area, like Chico, Butte County, how has that changed since you've been there? Well, it's interesting. Um, you know, I ride a bike around town, and if you kind of stay in the core of the town, it really hasn't changed much in 30 years. There's mm. been a bunch of growth around the edges, but mm -hmm. the, the kind of bikeable part of town really um, is pretty similar. You know, it's kind of the downtown's still kind of a little cluster of businesses that can live off of college students and bars mm -hmm. and restaurants and then out around the edges it looks like every other town with you know Kohl's and Best Buy and Walmart and Home Depot and but the downtown's kind of stayed similar. What is your earliest memory 
of California. And why do you think that memory stuck with you? My earliest memory of California is going down to uh, going out on the roof of our house in Berkeley and looking up at the hills to see snow on the Berkeley Hills when I was really? maybe three. And my dad said, look, it snowed last night and I'd never seen snow before. And uh, I didn't really know what I was looking at, but I, that's, I think that's one of the earliest memories. Snow in Berkeley. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. Was that the last time it snowed in Berkeley? Yeah, maybe. Do you have another most enduring or significant memory of California since then? Well, yeah, I have a lot of kind of place memories. I've, I've kind of been lucky in my career that I've gotten to see a lot of land on foot and on a bike and from a helicopter and airplane. And so I'd say those memories of, you know, flying over the Sierra Nevada or, um, you know, some of these remote places, I think of those places often. Who are some Californians who've influenced you over the years or impacted you and who you are personally? Yeah, I've had a lot of good mentors. I started working as a contractor on fires in about 2000. And so my bosses were all kind of um, you know, Vietnam vets or uh, that era who'd become leaders in fire in California and had careers and moved up through kind of the food chain of the fire industry. And so I, I spent a lot of time with those guys in a pickup truck driving around learning, you know, kind of kind of how we learn in the fire business is kind of you download from the passenger seat while your boss drives around and waves his arm out the window. Guys like um, Barry Kallenberger, Bob Burnham, Ed Wagner, um, Pete Finney, Steve Reif, um, not famous um, in the outside world, but well-known in uh, in the fire business. Yeah, what kind of stuff did they teach you? What are some of the takeaways that you remember from that time? Well, some of the guys, you know, firefighters end up putting a lot of fire on the ground um, during fires. So they're out playing with fire in July and August. And one of the things they taught me is that you can put a lot of fire on the ground in forests that if you looked at them, you would think it was impossible. But that you can actually, you know, even when things are hot and dry, you can still often put fire on the ground in a way that doesn't kill all the trees. So those are kind of like some aha moments, you know, because I didn't really come up through being on, you know, a fire crew and spending, you know, 10 years in the woods doing that. Um, a lot of the lessons that I've learned on that has come from spending a lot of time with these old guys. And I know you have featured some of them on YouTube and other work you've done with The Lookout. What do you want people to know about those folks and the work they've done and their importance to California, especially as it pertains to fire and fire management and forest management? Well, they've all got PTSD. Yeah. That's, that's what people should know. I think about old people in fire is that uh, we're all traumatized and we've all been kind of across our careers watching this kind of slow motion train wreck unfold on the lands that we, in, that we love and work in. What's that impact been like for you? Well, it's all consuming, right? We work in, let's, let's look at, let's talk about fire all day, read about fire, learn about fire, talk to people about fire. Uh, it's been close to home in Butte County because we had the campfire and we had the bear fire and we've had, you know, over a hundred people killed by wildfire and, you know, course of two years here um, thousands of houses burned down land that we all knew well just uh, charred so it is dramatic it's uh, anxiety inducing and um, a lot to process a lot to um, try to integrate you know all this change we're all going through a lot of change in in California and ev all over the world but it's a lot to try to integrate this change into 
your understanding of how the world's supposed to work. In a climate where fire season is virtually year round, I mean, I don't want to overstate things. I know there's kind of a break, but do you have time to process fire in California and the, and its impact on, like you said, the, the people and the communities that it has hit? Well, not really because winter time is prescribed fire season. So if the conditions aren't so dry, they're worried about wildfire. We're trying to put fire on the ground to uh, deprive the next wildfire of fuel. So you studied geography and you have worked in geography in addition to fire over the years. How does California's geography specifically influence or impact you and who you are, whether it's a specific location or specific terrain? Well, it's a great state to live in just because we've got so much variety. You know, I've traveled all over and we've got mountain meadows and we've got this enormous valley. The, I think the, the sense of scale you get in California is remarkable. You know, I spent a year in New Zealand and by the time I left there, I was just like so claustrophobic. You know, there's nowhere in that country where you're you know, more than 60 miles from the ocean. Nowhere that you can just look out and see this huge continental view. And in the valley here, I can just go up in the foothills and I can look out and I can watch like a weather system arrive. And I can see it, you know, from Mount Diablo all the way up to the north end of the valley all at once. And so I think that kind of grand scale of California is, um, it, it really is grand. You know, the Great Central Valley, even though it's all kind of drained and channelized and everything, it's still great. You get out there in the middle of the valley and you've got mountains on both sides of you and geese flying over. And so I think the sense of scale here is really incredible. And that we've got these, this massive mountain range, we've got this massive ocean, we've got this massive valley. And that those things are, there's this richness to it that you don't get in other places, you know, like Nebraska or the idea that you can drive an hour and be in a completely different environment. You know, I think that's a treat as a geographer. You know, you just, there's a lot to kind of see and process and feel. Where do you work and what do you do there? Um, I've got a little shed in my backyard. Uh, so physically where I work is in a little uh, 120 square foot office shed that started off as a place to store bikes. And um, so that's the lookout. It's, uh, it's about the size of a normal fire lookout. And um, I also work for a company that I founded called Deer Creek Resources. And they have an office here um, at the Chico Airport as part of a larger company. And so I, I work about you know, two thirds time for them doing um, pre-fire planning and kind of consulting around wildfire safety. And then I work, you know, a third of the time on the lookout project, which is something we started a year ago. What is the lookout? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because it has a specific definition in firefighting terms and, and you've adapted it now to yeah. um, the, the, the program that you, you, you share with your viewers and listeners. Yeah, there's the lookout on a mountaintop, which is a little cabin that has a bunch of windows and you stand up there and look for smoke. And then there's the lookout on the fire line, which is a person that is uh, keeping an eye on the big picture. So the crew that's out digging ditches through the woods um, knows what's happening. You know, it's the person sitting on the hill watching to see if the fire is going to jump the line or watching to see if a storm is coming. And so I feel like uh, we're kind of equal parts, the cabin on the hill, looking at the grand view and we're also the, the person sitting on the hill telling people what's coming. Uh, that idea that people need an interpreter with all this information about fire. They need someone to uh, help them understand 
the complexity of fire management, the complexity of our, our um, crisis with it. And also that it's alarming right now. Everyone's kind of down in the hole with fire burning all around them. And uh, people need kind of a voice. You know, the lookout um, is a kind of a um, safety blanket for the crew boss. Uh, it's nice mm. knowing that someone's up on the hill who's got your back. And so we kind of want to have mm. people's back in California and be a calm voice on the radio when things are getting a little squirrely to let them know like, Hey, you should get out of there. You don't need to run, but Hey, let's, uh, you know, something's coming. You mentioned the aha moment when you were writing shotgun with the mentors that you had back in the day, what was the aha moment you had with the lookout to that kind of triggered you? It's like, listen, people need this information. We, I need to be that interpreter, as you mentioned, that can, can help people better understand the scenarios they face in uh, the places where they live. Yeah, for me, that was the Dixie Fire. The Dixie Fire was a million acres, burned for two months, and it burned all around the town I'm from. And so I still have family up there, I have a lot of friends up there, and people up there tend to get their information from Facebook. Mm. Um, Especially with COVID, the the newspaper shut down. Uh, There's an online version of the newspaper up out of Susanville, but it's, it's pretty bare bones. And the agencies, the feds and the state both aren't great at getting nuanced, detailed, kind of operational level detail out to the public during wildfires. And so I've been using Facebook to kind of keep my community up there informed for, you know, probably almost 15 years. But there's just this real limitation to social media for telling nuanced stories and for having to kind of moderate comments and deal with um it's just Facebook's terrible for a nuanced conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started using Twitter last year and it was a little better just because I felt like I was getting more of a technical audience. But I realized during the Dixie Fire, there was just, there was so much going on and I was publishing a ton of maps and I was just really facing the limitations of Facebook as a platform. So I started a website and started blogging, publishing maps every morning on the situation and kind of writing, um, an intel assessment every day of what I saw happening via the kind of intelligence that I was uh, gathering and kind of interpreting all day. I wish listeners could see where you're sitting because uh, a few minutes ago you mentioned the shed in your backyard. You've kind of turned into a studio and Zeke is sitting uh, with a mic stand in front of him and in the backdrop uh, an assortment of maps are affixed to the wall. What are the maps that you have back there and and why are they important for what you're trying to do with the lookout? So these maps behind me are fire maps. We publish various different maps every day. The one behind me, there's one that's air ops map. So it has all the, it's a map for pilots and flight controllers. And it's got the, you know, helicopter dip sites and the drop points and other kind of, you know, power lines and stuff that pilots need to know about. Got another map that's communications map, and that shows where repeaters are for the radio systems that they they put in temporary radio systems during fires. I've got a suppression repair map that shows where all the damage caused by firefighting is, all the bulldozer lines and places that they you know cut fences and you know push dirt into a creek. Um, they have to map all that and repair it before they leave. So um, I just put those up because um, kind of gives some variety, and it, I think kind of adds to the flavor here of this being kind of a map-based kind of geography-themed um, media enterprise. And you also mentioned the idea of fire intel, fire intelligence. And this comes up on the lookout quite frequently. 
what exactly is fire intelligence and how and where do you get it? Yeah, so fire intelligence is, there's a whole kind of section within the incident command of these large fires. And it's incident command can be applied to floods, earthquakes, uh, bombings, running a wedding, having a party. <laughs> right. Like it's, it's basically um, when a firefighter gets married, you know, ICS is involved. Incident command system. You've got your food unit leader and your ground support leader and your, you know, logistics chief and your communications <laughs> unit. And so, um, yeah, so we plug in to the planning section of these teams and, uh, yeah, we use ICS every day, right. To run the household. Um, mm -hmm. and in the planning section, there's a situation unit and the situation unit's job is to figure out what's going on and communicate that to the entire enterprise underneath that situation unit leader is a mapping section the gis section and so our job in that capacity is to gather intelligence from either sending people out to the fire line with a gps unit or debriefing people as they come in or getting a helicopter to go fly around the edge of the fire and map it with gps or having a drone fly over and scan the fire or you know there's planes that fly at twenty thousand feet and scan the fire with infrared in the middle of the night so our job in the situation unit is to gather all that intelligence, vet it, make sure it's accurate, and then put it on maps for the next day's worth of firefighters. So I've been doing that work since 99. And a lot of this data is open source. It's published to uh, government websites. When we map the fire, then we upload our shape, you know, the file that has the geometry of the fire to a public website so other people in the organization can get it. So that's stuff that I, I just know where it is because I've been doing this forever. And um, I gather that. They fly every night on most fires with a plane that maps the fire, the heat of the fire. So the bulk of what I do my live streams on and everything is just this publicly available infrared map that comes out in the middle of the night. So I wake up early. I look at it. I interpret what I see happening. I look at where the fire was the day before. And then I kind of provide my assessment of that on YouTube or on, on the lookout website and say, hey, look, the fire crossed this canyon and it ran up to the top and it spotted into the next canyon. And that means that this strategy that they were using of having this control line on this ridge isn't going to work anymore. So now it looks like they're going to have to go to the next ridge. And that means that this town's now threatened, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So I'm just interpreting that publicly available information. Your website is amazing. And your YouTube live streams in particular just kind of blow my mind. And I know thousands of people watch those many watch live others watch them later um you know usually within a, i imagine a day or so of you showing them because that's when it's current um who is your audience who do you envision yourself talking to as you as you sit there and kind of break down the latest on a fire i'd like to know i really don't know um my wife has <laughs> spent some time looking to analytics she said it's mainly um middle-aged men um, based on the comments um, there's a lot of people who are interested in forestry, you know, and we're really interested in forestry with the lookout. So I think we have a somewhat technical audience. And then we also have people that are just directly affected by the incident. So it, you know, it changes when we have less fire going on. Like we've been covering fires up in Trinity County, really in the middle of nowhere. And so our audience there, I think is more kind of local. Uh, last year we were covering the Caldor fire and the day that the fire count burned into South Lake Tahoe. That was kind of like the biggest video we've had. You know, we got like 100,000 views in the first day or two. Mm -hmm. So there I think it's a, it's this population of people that 
are evacuated or who have cabins in Tahoe or, um, you know, it's a little more viral then. But I think a lot of those people don't necessarily come back to watch the video about, you know, Jim Klump's forestry career or something. Uh, they should. So how accessible do you feel like you have to make these reports and these live streams so that people who are perhaps under threat from an encroaching fire know what they're dealing with and know how to respond? I think we, we try to make it pretty um, accessible and not a lot of jargon. Um, try to keep it calm. We don't get into evacuations, you know, um, and I try not to get too predictive. It's hard because, you know, if you predict something's going to happen and then it happens, then you look smart. And um, so there's this kind of uh, perverse incentive to like get up and say, oh, I think the fire's going to do this tomorrow. And then almost invariably, it never does that. Maybe it does that three days later. <laughs> so then you're kind of just waiting for it to happen. Uh, but you're right. Eventually I was right. Yeah. Right, I told you it was going to go out eventually. You know, I, I, um, I talked to Lucy Walker last year when she did her movie, um, bring your own brigade about California fire issues. And she introduced the forestry topic as saying that it's a little bit inscrutable and a little bit boring. And so I try to keep that in mind that like, yeah, it's not everyone's cup of tea to talk about the effects of forest thinning on future fire behavior. Uh, it just happens to be something I'm interested in. If people want to watch me geek out on it, like I'm glad, you know, we're probably not going to like dumb things down too much or get a bunch of dancers or anything, you know, to try to build our, our following. <laughs> That would be amazing. Yeah. The lookout on TikTok, doing some dancing. <laughs> Zeke's got a, a bit of a Cheshire cat smile going on here. I, I sense maybe I've hit a nerve. <laughs> I need an intern. All right. Um, you do get out of the shed and you do go out and talk to firefighters. How much of these conversations is part of you kind of gathering the fire intelligence you were talking about and how much of it is your attempt to chronicle and tell the story of the fire and the people like Jim Klump and those mentors you talked about earlier, those people who are working to contain the fires. Yeah. I, I try to get out. Um, I don't go out a lot right to the fire while it's burning. Um, you know, over the course of my career, I've been around most of the big fires in California's history, you know, the, um, the most destructive ones. And what I've learned is just that I just need, it's good to stay out of the way. You know, like I'm glad that there's some people, some reporters that go out and get some really incredible footage. But, um, I usually feel like I'm in the way when I'm out there. I feel like, you know, if my car breaks down right now, is someone going to have to stop firefighting to like save me? Maybe that just comes from like a long life of driving crappy cars, but I like to kind of stay out of the way. Um, a lot of the times I'm going out to fires, it's like, it's after things are winding down. I'm talking to the people that are kind of cleaning up the mess. You know, I, I don't fancy myself to be like a real fire line reporter. I think I'll go out and cover some fires um, that are in areas that we're already talking about with forestry, but I'm not going to go out to a brush fire in Lake County and, you know, um, shoot video of air tankers or something. That's not really my jam. But as far as talking to people, um, I spend a lot of time talking to people who are on the fires during the fires. You know, over the course of 30 years in this business um, of forestry and, and fire, um, I end up. I know a lot of the people that are out running these fires and I know they're busy, but, um, if I can catch them during a Dixie fire and say like, Hey, what's going on? Like, where are you working? What are you seeing? What are the, you know, the human factors are this really interesting kind of messy part of this whole fire crisis. When we talk about why the Dixie fire got to be a million acres, all of the people who are involved in all the kind of human issues there of, 
disappointment and frustration and blame and like those are the things that people don't don't they don't get reported on much and so i think those are the the conversations i'm interested in having is like hey we lost this fire like this fire beat us for 60 days how did that affect the team you know how did that how did people react to like losing firing operations that then burned a hundred thousand acres what did that do to um the tactics and strategy people were implementing after that, you know, how did, how did people's kind of, um, fear, um, or their reaction to something they tried that didn't work affect what they thought they could get away with after that in the fire. It's really interesting to hear you talk about this because that's the same vibe that I get from watching the lookout. Like as a viewer, it seems like these guys trust you, these, these firefighters, they trust you and they have, a, a little more confidence and comfort explaining some of this stuff to you. And I know that you're kind of sort of one of them and that probably helps, but there's something else going on. There's something else I sense as a viewer. Why do you think these folks feel so comfortable and so confident uh, opening up to you about not just like the technical details of firefighting, but also the kind of first impressions about the impact of these fires and, and their work trying to contain them? Well, I think, it's because most of the people I talk to have known for 20 years or more. And so we've got a personal relationship. And the, the difficult thing about covering fire is just that the, um, the agencies, you've got the public information officer that kind of sits between the firefighters and the media and they're really tight lipped. And for the most part, the agencies don't want firefighters to talk to media. It's almost like, you know, some of these interviews, you don't see it, but there's a, you know, a minder basically sitting right off my elbow. They're sitting off your elbow, even though you've known these folks for 20 years. Right. Like I wanted to go out and do a video about uh, the cleanup after the Dixie fire. And I had to get permission from the public information officer on the forest, public information officer on the command team who happened to be from, you know, Georgia or something. They go out in the woods and huh. talk to a, a guy that I've worked with for 25 years. Wow. And then he sat there the whole time to make sure that we kind of stayed on script. So there's that, you know, I think that's one of the reasons that um, there's an appetite for something like The Lookout is because this, the traditional media coverage is really scripted and kind of um, steered by basically a propaganda officer that makes sure that the story is kind of in the talking points of the agency. How has the overall conversation around fire in California changed since you started? And I guess more specifically, how do you sense The Lookout? Uh, in your work, influencing that conversation, it's hard. It's hard to know exactly how, what our reach is beyond you know um, people who are immediately interested because of something that's threatening their their home and their livelihood. But it's nice to be part of this conversation. There's this new kind of conversation around fire happening with the kind of hashtag Good Fire, mm -hmm. which has been kind of a concerted effort by the Nature Conservancy and Prescribed Fire advocates and educators to kind of popularize this term good fire and so i think that there's some momentum building there and that there's a lot of alternative narrative around fire and fire's place on the landscape and so uh, it's kind of fertile ground for us to be planting these seeds with the lookout and you know our work in prescribed fire has given us a lot of good content to be able to use in our videos can you give us a quick overview of the fire challenges facing California in 2022, heading into 2023, whether it's you know drought and climate change or just firefighting resources? 
um, you know, population growth or building in the wildland urban interface, aka the WUI, all of the above, none of the above, any part of the above. What do you think? We, we've been in this kind of deep crisis with fire since about 2015 when we had the Valley Fire that wiped out Middletown. And then, you know, we had fires that wiped out weed and um, it's just been kind of like this one urban interface disaster after the next Malibu again, the campfire. And so there's been a huge amount of money poured into firefighting capabilities in California, new crews, air tankers, new helicopters, new bulldozers. So enormous investment in the material of a war on wildfire. But the thing, the perverse thing about that is that the more effective we are on initial attack, the more fires we put out when they're small, the more likely we're going to have big, unfightable fires. And we know that. Why? Because we've got this Mediterranean climate where we get moisture in the winter and hot, dry summers. And California grows vegetation incredibly well. So these vast stretches of California, which are also the nice kind of cooler places to live, they're not the valley, you know, uh, Colfax and Nevada City and Placerville and Pollock Pines and uh, Twain Hart and Groveland and Oakhurst. All the way from Bakersfield to Mount Shasta, basically, there's this kind of belt of black oak forest with ponderosa pine where vegetation grows really well and so do subdivisions. And mm, right. so we just accumulate this enormous debt of fire. Every time we put out a fire, we're adding to this fire deficit. And the fires that used to burn every five years, now some places haven't burned for 100 years. So we've got 20 times as much vegetation there as uh, we normally would. So then when we get a fire that escapes initial attack, and it's getting harder for the fires to escape initial attack because, you know, a small fire now in the foothills, like they're going to have like eight air tankers there in the first hour. Then they're going to drop $500,000 worth of red mud on it and it's going to be out. And so we're upping the ante. We're, we're putting out more and more of these fires in the foothills. But in the process, then we end out with an enormous fuel load and then we'll get an east wind event in September and the fire will burn until the wind stops blowing. The solution, in my mind, isn't more suppression, right? Um, we're we're just trapped in it because we can't not put the fires out. It's just, but it's, we've already tried that. We've already tried putting out all the fires. And that's why we're having campfires and why we're having mm -hmm. um, bear fires and why we're having the Caldor fire. Like, it's a direct result of being too good at putting fires out. And so getting better at firefighting is not a long-term solution to the problem. In a conversation earlier this year on your show, on The Lookout, with climate scientist Daniel Swain, who is a, a previous guest of ours on What is California, you mentioned that when those Foothills residents you just mentioned, when they ask you, how do I keep my home fire safe? You tell them, move to the valley. And it's kind of tongue in cheek. Um, and because then you say, oh, of course, the valley will eventually flood. So there's that hazard. But I do want to go back to the suggestion to move because I'm curious, like how sincerely you meant that. And I guess, is that something you do actually advise people um, even to this day? And how strenuously or emphatically would you advise that? Well, I tend to say that to people I know. <laughs> uh, I don't really go out and like, I'm not going to take out a billboard that says move to town. Well, you can tell our listeners right now. <laughs> I don't want the realtors to come after me. 
yeah, man, I, I'm not going to live in the foothills, you know, like I'm not going to, it's, uh-huh. it's nice up there. It's cool. And it rains sometimes. And it's like, it's not hellish valley living where we huddle in our air conditioned cubes for, you know, four months out of the year, but it's messed up, man. Like it's messed up and it's going to burn like just about everywhere up there is going to burn. And like, uh, it doesn't matter how much money we spend on cutting brush in my opinion. Like there's some good stuff people are doing cutting brush in the foothills to, to improve the situation. But like, it's not just a physical problem or it's not just that like the problem is that there's brush and we need to cut it. It's like, it's a, an enormously complex social problem and economic problem. And so there's so much to talk about there. You know, there's like black market economies of pot growing and land development driven by the cannabis rush. It's a huge deal in Duke County. Um, there's multi-generational poverty and um, people living in terrible housing conditions in the foothills because they inherited something from grandma or something and have nowhere else to live. There's um, paranoia and drug addiction and people that don't want to talk to their neighbors. There's all this, all sorts of kind of outlaw weirdness in these zones of the red dirt in the foothills you know like you know when you're driving in the foothills and you see like the red clay and yeah, the road cut yeah. like don't drive down anyone's driveway here you know <laughs> right and so you got that overlay and then you're like uh, my job as kind of a fire planner a fuels planner is to be like hey if we cut the brush on these 10 parcels it's going to help us stop a fire coming out of that canyon with a south wind but getting those 10 people together to do anything is probably impossible Mm. Uh, either because they are absentee and you can't even find the land owner or they're leasing it to someone to grow pot or they don't like people. It's not just a problem of like, hey, let's just get an army of people with chainsaws and wood chippers and go solve this. It's more like, man, we got this really fractured social kind of geography going on and that makes it almost impossible to for communities to work together. And then you throw the effect of like a wildfire coming through and burning everyone's homes and displacing. And now some of those people are homeless. And now you've got people who own a lot that they may never rebuild on who are broke. And so it, it quickly becomes kind of untenable to resolve those problems. So if I'm living in Cohasset or Forest Ranch or it's one of these Butte County foothill communities that hasn't burned yet, it's like unless I can figure out how to negotiate that kind of social problem and work with my neighbors, it doesn't matter how much I cut brush on my property because my neighbor's property is going to bring a fire right to me. Is Cal Fire or any of the county agencies or anyone else, USDA, forestry, are they getting in there and saying, listen, we know we've got a bunch of different kind of competing fractured constituencies here, but the alternative to uh, you know, us solving this problem together is everything is going to burn. Everyone is going to burn. We, you have a choice. Like, is that ever a choice that's posed to these folks? Well, there's there's a really wide range of community capacity. And so there's this kind of notion in sociology that you've got this kind of innate capacity or lack thereof in communities. And so um, some poor communities have high community capacity if they've got um, tight social networks. Some rich communities have higher capacity it's not necessarily just tied to rich and poor but there's um some places that it works better so there's some places you can organize a fire safe council or you got a bunch of retired people with money with time on their hands and there's other places where that's just not going to happen and the scale of the problem is immense we've got 30 million acres of forested land in california 
Yeah. And just for the record, I don't mean to go in there and scare people. That's not the strategy. Well, I should be scared. You know, it's terrifying. I, I can't drive through a lot of these places without having freaking anxiety attack because it's like you just drive through and just all you see is like the chimney. Like I see right through the house and I just see the chimney standing there. I think there's got to be that happy medium between uh, advising people about the perils that they face and the uh, terror that isn't necessary in the moment. Right. Like it's just well, there's these nice places to live, but um, you might be living in fear six months out of the year every time you smell wood smoke that it's your day, you know. So you're next. I yeah. think what I'd like people to get out of the lookout is that they should know that if you that living in the country is a, a huge commitment. A lot of people want to buy five acres in the foothills and have a little, you know, a secluded refuge from urban life. But unless you've got, you know, some chainsaws and a dump trailer and a bobcat and friends that know how to use that stuff, or you have a lot of money to pay someone to come do that work, like you shouldn't do it because your place is going to burn down. Like if you really want to live in the woods, like it's, you can count on it being a second full-time job. If you've got more than an acre, you're going to be busy. Your spare time is going to be consumed with cutting brush, raking pine needles. Like that's what I want people to know is that the foothills are like, that's fire's home range. You're going to go build on fire's territory and uh, there's going to be some, you know, insurgency. Like fire's fire's not uh, good with that. Like if you're going to live there, you got to do it on fire's terms. I don't know. Would you say fire is the biggest challenge that California faces? Uh, and if not, what is the biggest challenge that California faces and how can that be surmounted? Um, housing, affordability, uh, wealth disparity. With fire now, we have this these refugees. We've got this forced migration. It was like, you know, 25,000 people had were forced to move out of paradise by the campfire. And I think a lot about it, just that that's, you know, migration is such a huge part. Like there's all this talk about illegal immigration and like that white people don't really think that like immigration happens to them somehow. They don't think that like they were forced to leave somewhere else and come here, whether they were like leaving the, the dust bowl or whether they had to leave the Midwest cause there were no jobs, but there's like California has got all sorts of people like me whose families were forced to leave somewhere else. You know, my dad's family came from, um, Eastern Montana where they're trying to farm wheat without irrigation in the 1940s. 1950s and so they immigrated kind of a forced migration uh, you know my mother's family they were Jewish refugees from Germany and they immigrated to Boston and then um, to the west coast and I think of how many people here are you know forced migrants in our even in our you know your and I generation we have family members you know my wife's mother was a refugee from Poland and um, you know her father was like a POW uh, of the Russians and now that's happening with climate change and fire refugees and I think that I think about migration and how we treat refugees and in Chico the way we're treating refugees is we're like kicking them from one park to the next um, because they're living in tents. You mean the evacuees from the campfire who are they're, living in Chico? Yeah, they're climate refugees, right? They, they're forced right. migrants out of paradise by circumstances beyond their control. And now they're in our parks and people are just, they don't, won't even give them a, like a porta potty. They got to go like poop under a rock. You know, it's this refugee camp basically. And so I think that that's one of the biggest issues affecting California is as we continue to burn people out of the mountains, um, we're going to have to deal with more and more refugees. And that's kind of a, 
um, it tells you something about a society is how they treat refugees. And we're going to have more and more of them. And so I think we're, those people are going to need help, just like you would open your door or your wallet to a Ukrainian who's fleeing war. You know, um, how we treat the, the climate refugees among us is going to be one of those factors that kind of we'll look back at in 100 years. And either we'll be proud of what we did as Californians or we'll be ashamed of how we responded to this crisis in our in our state, in our with our people. You know, there's so many people who live in cities that aren't really directly affected by fire. And so I think it's easy, like for us who live kind of in places that are affected by the fire, to like forget that, that like the majority of the taxpayers in the state live in L.A. and San Francisco and places that really don't have these big wildfire issues. Would you say that what happened in Napa or Sonoma counties, when was it, 2017? Uh, would you say that was a fluke or would you say that folks in communities like that or even more urban areas in general, like you were just alluding to, should perhaps think a little more carefully about how to prepare for fire? Yeah, I think so. You get deep into a city and it's less uh, likely, you know, but when you are on the edge of a, if you're living near wildland, I mean, the coffee park thing definitely took a lot of us by surprise, you know, with the fire jumping this freeway and just becoming a conflagration. But it's a wake up call that everyone who lives anywhere close to wild, dry wildlands that had fire in the past, um, that fire hasn't gone away. In your experience discussing California with folks outside the state, what do you find that they most misunderstand about California? Well, most of my work's in the state. So, um, and when I do travel out of state, often it's like fire related. Um, so I'll end up talking to people who, you know, from New Jersey who came out on a strike team to happy camp in 1982 or something. Being a Northern California person, I've had those typical experiences of everyone thinking that it's all Disneyland and surfing and not realizing that, you know, like I'm from a town where the predominant uh, work 50 years ago was logging, mm -hmm. you know, so people don't think of rural California when they think of California, I think. We end every episode of What is California with the same question for all guests. Get ready. Who is your favorite Californian, past or present, and why? Well, the first thing that came to mind was Frank Zappa. And, um, oh, wow. Or uh, Jello Biafra. And <laughs> uh, so, I, and then I thought, like, well, yeah, it had to be a musician, right? Um, uh -huh. Frank Zappa, just because uh, he kind of said what he thought. And, uh, wasn't afraid to really do his own thing. Jello Biafra, because I still think that uh, there's some punk in me and some kind of, uh, you know, anarchist that wants to break windows. All right. Well, those are excellent picks. Definitely unique and uh, much appreciated. Zeke Lunder, it has been awesome having you here. Thank you so much for joining us. All right. Us. Thanks for having me on. All right, there you have it. Zeke Lunder. What a guy. What a chat. That was awesome. If you haven't yet checked out thelookout.org, again, that's the-lookout.org, go have a look. It's really something. There's a lot of coverage there, and on his YouTube channel in particular, the live streams are worth checking out. Uh, he archives those there um, after they're done for you to review or just kind of 
kind of parse what he's looking at and get a better sense of what the state faces uh, regarding fire dangers and fire season. Thanks to Zeke for dropping by What is California? And thanks to you for listening. It's been great having you. What is California is produced, hosted, and edited by me, Stu Van Aersdale. Our theme music is by Sound Supreme. You can find us on Twitter at WhatCalifornia, and you can subscribe to What is California's Substack newsletter for free at whatiscalifornia.substack.com. That gets you a free episode of our podcast in your inbox every Tuesday, as well as a free roundup of cool weekend links that is cool California stories from around the state in your inbox every Friday. Again, that's whatiscalifornia.substack.com. It's free. Sign up today. I would love to see you there. If you have questions, comments, thoughts, concerns, marriage proposals, hate mail, other things I haven't even thought of yet, please go ahead and email me at hello at whatiscalifornia.com. I would always love to hear from you. It's great to hear from listeners. I really, really love those messages. And of course, I also love it if you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. In particular, if you like What is California and you rated and reviewed us on Apple Podcasts, that would really help new listeners find the show. So I'd be most grateful for that. That's a wrap on this episode. I really look forward to catching up with you next week. Thank you so much again for being here. Until then, remember, as always, keep your eye on the bear.